0: fake news the enemy of the people, and they are.
1: It's a serious question. I I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know
0: that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today I'm really pleased to be with Congressman Jamie Raskin. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, uh, Jamie is a former uh, state legislator in, uh, Mon- from Montgomery County, Maryland, and he's uh, Maryland's uh, newest member of, the, of Congress, uh, defeated a very heavy money interest to get here. Since then, he's, uh, he's made a mark already in Congress, and uh, people on the other side of the aisle will work with him. Jim Jordan refers to him as the professor. So uh, in an age where bipartisanship seems to be dead, it's actually encouraging to find someone who will reach across the aisle and
1: work with other people. Jamie,
0: thanks for being here today.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Brian. And it's sweet of you to say, you know, in Annapolis, there wasn't really anything weird about that. We really had a lot of bipartisan action. And a lot of the, the big bills I worked on, we did on a bipartisan basis, like uh, marriage equality and... Abolishing the death penalty and um, <laughs> not so much here. You can't get that bipartisan. No, it's time. a much more partisan environment But I you know, I'm a middle child. So I still like to reach out however I can. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> well, we'll start with since the name of the show is just ask the question. I'm gonna just ask this question. What's
1: wrong with Congress? <clears throat>
0: that could be a well, whole show
1: <laughs> you know I, but I'll tell you that this just a couple of observations as a new member one thing that's wrong with it is that it's neglecting the central duty of a legislative body, which is it's not having hearings. So I was amazed to find when I got here that there were all these votes that were happening on stuff like repeal the Affordable Care Act or let's pass a balanced budget constitutional amendment without the benefit of a single hearing. So you're running around asking, what is this about? Is this a good thing to do, a bad thing to do? Is it going to help us or not? Um, And so I feel like the basics of the legislative process are missing. And that's one thing I hope that we can change. How do you do that? If and when the Democrats come back in. I mean, what it's reflective of is an ideological form of government where you basically have certain precepts and ideas. You don't care what the facts say. You disregard science. Maybe even you uh, insult science. you Dis, you know, you just dis science at every turn, and so you're not looking. You're at talking data. about Pruitt now, but that's <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about climate change. I'm talking about the EPA. I'm talking about a whole approach, which is it's almost like theological in nature. It's like we have certain religious attitudes about taxes and deficits and the environment and so on, and we don't care, even if the scientists say there's climate change, we say that there's not. Even the economists tell us that our tax policy is driving huge, staggering deficits in the country. We'll say, no, we'll get the money back. We'll we'll make it back. Our
0: children will pay for this. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's one of the arguments. uh, You know, President Trump has loved to tout how great the economy is, but we're making it great on the backs of our unborn children.
1: Oh, I mean, it's a total credit card recovery sugar high. That we're on. I mean, the fundamentals are pretty strong based on what Obama did, um, but all the Republicans have done is give away, uh, you know, a couple trillion dollars to the wealthiest interests and in corporations in the country, and uh, it's not a prudent, wise way to go. We would have been better off uh, paying everybody's student loan debt than just giving it to the richest people in the country who are out buying. Do we'll you ever and do that? Helicopters you know, we're going to have to deal with the problem of student debt, and we're going to have to deal with the problem of college affordability, for real, because, you know, it is the avenue for people to um, get into meaningful careers. And so we've got to make it possible for everybody to go. Those are the kinds of issues that have been completely sidelined during this period of chaos and derangement, where we're just buffeted like a pinball from tweet to tweet and, you know, one form of lunacy to another.
0: Well, what, to play the devil's advocate, what about the Republicans who say, look, you're just stoking the fire with that kind of rhetoric, and uh, the Democrats don't want to work with us. They walked out. And oh, For example, this past week, uh, Senator Grassley was saying that um, in the process of vetting uh Brett Kavanaugh that the Democrats didn't help out at all and held out information to the last minute. It's actually the Democrats who want to stonewall. It's the Republicans who want to get things done.
1: Well, let's let's grab the bull by the horns and talk about the Kavanaugh nomination. Um, Now, it's a nomination which I opposed from the very beginning because we have uh, more than enough right wing Federalist Society judges on there who want to do nothing more than enshrine uh, corporations as the... um, effective government in the United States and subordinate public and regulatory process to what corporations want and then subordinate the rights and liberties of the people to the state. So it's like corporations on top, then the government and the people are at the bottom. It's the exact opposite of the way it should be in a real democracy. So, you know, to be clear, I've been opposed to him. But for people who even wanted that, uh, I mean, even if you're a Federalist Society person, um, don't you think that you would want to have a meaningful FBI investigation, a meaningful fact investigation to these extremely credible charges that have been brought forth of a drunken sexual assault? Well, FBI doesn't draw conclusions just 302s yeah i mean these these people have great talking points but that's meaningless of course they don't draw conclusions the conclusions have to be drawn by the senate but the conclusions are drawn based on facts and the uh, assembly of real evidence and in interviews with people but they haven't done it they've accepted you know this six line uh, conclusory statement by a guy who was according to the victim in the room at the time Imagine if that's the way you looked at any case of sexual assault. If somebody was in the room, it was enough for them to get out of testifying and being part of it. That They write you six sentences saying, "Uh, I don't think I remember this, and I don't think I was there.
0: Yeah, my question was,
1: if he makes it to the Supreme Court, how's he going to feel if that argument comes before him? Look, the truth (laughs) always surfaces, you know? That's true. And it's going to surface in this case. And your point is correct. I mean, what you've got is um, a guy who's been... you know at best indifferent if not hostile to the rights of criminal defendants and now they're using every conceivable criminal defense lawyer's trick in the book to try to dodge and evade the reality of what happened he
0: doesn't want the fbi investigating him. doesn't he want sa- an fbi he says, investigation being there is all that was necessary you're interviewing me i'm there i wanted the, i wanted this hearing yeah. the day
1: of the victim has uh, submitted herself to a polygraph exam and has passed a polygraph exam and she'll do it again with the fbi He refuses to do that and says, oh, well, they're not admissible in federal court. One, we're not in federal court. And two, that's a dodge and evasion from the reality of the situation. Why won't he subject himself to that? Why won't he, you know, subject himself to a real FBI investigation? Look, the Federalist Society wants to put this guy on the Supreme Court for the next 30 or 40 years. And they won't extend this process by a week or 10 days in order to get to the truth of the situation and to interview the uninterviewed witnesses and examine the unexamined evidence? I mean, that makes no sense at all.
0: Well, it it doesn't, and and I can't play devil's advocate on that because I agree with you, but I do want to bring up a point that when we spoke with um, victims, and, you know, all of this happened in our backyard. This is Montgomery County. And we spoke with a number of people who came forward, a lot of them wanting anonymity, some who spoke... um, discreetly with uh, state, federal, and local investigators who were deciding whether or not they would pursue something. There are no, and and to be straight, for Montgomery County Police or the state of Maryland to investigate this, a complaint would have to be filed and there have been no complaints filed. So I, I I can definitively say that to people, say why isn't there an investigation? But more to the point, when we spoke with a woman, she said the thing that keeps coming back to me was the culture of privilege, that do we want someone on the Supreme Court who's never had to face the consequences that the rest of us face on a daily basis? I
1: mean, isn't it amazing that after Dr. Ford's absolutely believable, incredible, and sincere and riveting testimony, after that, they come out to profess their profound and unconditional sympathy for... Judge Kavanaugh, a guy who's had every conceivable privilege in life. He's had the best possible education at Georgetown Preparatory. He's gotten to Yale College, all the fraternities, Yale Law School. He's had every advantage and privilege in life. And he came out having a temper tantrum yesterday simply because this woman was willing to come forward to tell the truth about what happened to her. And you know what? If it really was a lie, if she was really part of some criminal conspiracy by the far left as he says, to sabotage his, investiga- his uh, nomination. Wouldn't he want an investigation in the, by the FBI into this conspiracy? Wouldn't he want an investigation to remove the dark cloud which will now follow him around for the rest of his days? Well, yeah, I would. And here's my other question.
0: Put the shoe on the other foot. What if Dr. Ford had walked into that hearing yesterday and had thrown a temper tantrum and cried and screamed like he did? how would she be viewed?
1: Oh, they would have called her hysterical and they would have called her um, not believable. And look... I, yeah, I, he
0: was because he was strident.
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think... Uh, I believe Dr. Ford, just to lay my cards on the table. I mean... I do too. She's got right no my, reason yeah. to lie. She seemed completely credible. But even if you didn't believe her, his performance yesterday was so shocking... Uh, so stunningly intemperate for a, a, a guy who wants to be on the Supreme yes. Court of the United States, he disqualified himself. I mean, when he started, when he he started going back to just being uh, a partisan bit player, you know, hardball tactician, and started attacking the Democrats and the left wing and so on. What does that have to do with being a justice on the Supreme Court of the United States? Nothing. Uh, you know, and so he he is absolutely going to lower the tone of the Supreme Court, just like he absolutely lowered the tone of this process in the Senate. And, you know, they get up uh, crying about a circus-like atmosphere. They created the circus atmosphere. They yeah. create the circus atmosphere, they create the chaos and derangement, and then they denounce the process in this big smoke smokescreen. Um, and it's a very anti-democratic uh, attitude about our institutions, and for a judge so to do as shocking.
0: Well, yes, it is, and, and and I agree with you, and I I wholeheartedly believe everything that she said. There were a couple of very telling moments where there was there were a couple of key ways that she told that story that there left me with no doubt um, that she was a victim of a sexual assault and that he did it. But uh, let's look at uh, so in looking at what's wrong with Congress and its inability to provide checks and balances on the executive branch since uh, Donald Trump has been elected, you have introduced some legislation. And I want to clear up some problems with the 25th Amendment. There was talk, there was this letter from Anonymous, this op-ed piece in the New York Times, who said that basically they don't have the votes for the 25th Amendment. And there are plenty of people who don't understand what the 25th Amendment is and does, and what your legislation would do. So can we start with what does the 25th amendment do?
1: Okay, well the 25th amendment has four sections to it. One says uh if the president is gone, the vice president becomes president. The second says if there's a vacancy in the vice presidency, the president nominates and then the congress will ratify it by majority vote in both the house of congress and that's what happened like when Spiro Agnew left and Nixon right. nominated Ford. Okay. Um the section three says that their president can temporarily sign away powers if he or she is going to be incapacitated for a period of time. So, um, Ronald Reagan, you know, Ronald Reagan did it. Uh, Bush did it when he had a colonoscopy. A number of members have done it. Every single section has been used. Except for Section 4. Now, Section 4 hasn't been used yet. But what it says is that the vice president and a majority of the cabinet or the vice president and a majority of a body set up by Congress can determine that the president is unable for whatever reason to execute the powers and duties of office. And in that case, a majority of either the cabinet or this body can act to certify to Congress that there is such a presidential inability, and then the vice president becomes the president.
0: Now, uh, at that point— The the question is, there is no mechanism set up for a—
1: as prescribed in that legislation from Congress to work— You got it. That's the whole key here. You know, most of the press gets this wrong every day, and I'm glad you're going to get it right here, Brian, because— Most of the press says it takes a majority in the cabinet. That's one way. There is another. The other way is a majority of a body set up by Congress. And when I got elected, one of the first things I did was I couldn't find the body. And I called over the Library of Congress and I said, hey, where's the body that was set up under the 25th Amendment? And they said, it's never been set up. So it could have been set up 50 years ago after passage of the 25th Amendment, but it's never been set up. And I think that is a a crucial oversight. oversight that is becoming more and more a danger to the republic. Because, look, the 25th Amendment is designed in such a way that either the cabinet could act, and obviously the cabinet is directly responsive to the president. And so that's tough for them to do. You're talking about, you know, the secretaries of the defense and agriculture and education going against their own boss or this body that's set up on a bicameral basis, on a bipartisan basis by Congress. And that's all my legislation does. It does not mention Trump by name because it would apply to any president. And it doesn't doesn't activate any procedures at this point. All it does is it says, we're going to set the body up so the body is ready to be in action in the event of a crisis. And the authors of the 25th Amendment, uh, Birch Bayh and Bobby Kennedy, and they and it passed overwhelmingly on a bipartisan basis, um, they talked about the fact that we're in the nuclear age now. we got 535 members of Congress, so you can afford to have a few of them you know, be... Under anesthesia, you can afford to have some of them with a heart attack or a stroke, and they're recovering. a but psychotic not the president. But we have one president. You got it. We got yeah. one president, and so in the nuclear age, we cannot fool around. That's what the whole thing is about. So let's set the body up. I think we've got around 70 co-sponsors on our legislation. Now, unfortunately, we have no Republicans. Um, really? And no, no Republicans? No. Even Jim Jordan, the one who's— No. I mean, they just view it as too political. They say, well, if we sign on, it's like saying that we think that Donald Trump is deranged and unstable. And it's not saying that. It's just saying we need to have a process in place in the event that things continue to go south. How could you sell that to Republicans? Not 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 a, that's a hard sell. Well, you know, what's weird is when you read all of these books, the behind the scenes tales of what's going on in the Trump White House, and you talk to the top people including, you know, Steve Bannon and now Rod Rosenstein's one of them, the 25th amendment is frequently discussed behind closed doors by people on their side. The problem is it's being discussed by the side of the equation that's very unlikely to produce any results, the executive branch side. You're going to have to have a majority in the cabinet say it's time to do something. That's much tougher than Congress saying, let's just set up the body that's called for by the amendment. Well, you
0: can talk to, and I have, members of uh, the executive branch staff who have left, and there are plenty of them who have fled who talk about it frequently, Yeah, but there is no one going to make that move inside the White House or inside the executive yeah. branch of government.
1: Well, Brian, it is a sign of how dramatically our standards have shifted over the last couple of years, that people watch the president's performance at press conferences and don't say to themselves, my God, there's something really strange going on here, you know, because if you if you had watched any of these press conferences three I've or I've been four at years them. <laughs> this, yeah. No, I know you, you've been through all of them. But if if we had shown you one four years ago, you would say that's not possible. That's a Saturday Night Live skit. That can't be the president of the United States. I'd say you know? compare it in in the worst. Pre- I I maintain
0: that the president who made all of this possible was Ronald Reagan. Uh, he in, he empowered the far right. He there was there were. Ku Klux Klaners in in Damascus in the eighties who were, felt empowered by Ronald Reagan. He he dismissed cat he, he called ketchup a vegetable. He 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 dismissed unions. I mean everything that has brought us to Donald Trump started there. And yet and he had few press conferences. And yet the one that I remember attending uh, during his time was in like eighty six. That was still a presidential news conference. There was. There was some give and take and yeah. respect, and it—you know—I remember being there feeling this is wow, this is—and now I go there and I go, this reminds me of my kids when they come home late from
1: school and they're—they're they're lying to me about what they're where they've been. Right. I, I just don't feel like there's any well adults in the room, and that degradation of standards now permeates everything. Look at the hearing yesterday with uh, Kavanaugh, where he just lashed out in the most partisan political hardball
0: Unprofessional.
1: He went after um, Senator Klobuchar asking whether she'd ever blacked out. Right. If you have a drinking problem, she's not on trial here and she's not trying to get on the Supreme Court here and what right does he have to go after her like that? But that's the whole tenor of it. I mean, you know, in the age of Donald Trump, all bets are off. We need some standards and we need some process here.
0: Well, the criticism of the Democrats, though, is that you guys are a... uh, First of all, no one, you know, you're you're not going to get a blue wave. Everyone, you know, there's the the White House and Republicans think that you're full of it. And that, too, there's no backbone that the Democrats don't come out as strong as the Republicans and people respond to the sideshow antics, but not to the to the reality.
1: Well, let's see. First of all, we are building the big blue wave, and it's going to be not just a wave, it's going to be a tidal wave that's coming in if we do our job right, if we go out. And we also know we we understand the odds. We're up against a wall of gerrymandered districts. Gerrymandering is the key to Republican control. Well,
0: Maryland is gerrymandered pretty—
1: Yeah, it's one of the few states where the Democrats are in control. But if you look at Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania— uh, Kentucky, Most of the Tennessee. states have been gerrymandered. The The Republicans control a supermajority of the state legislatures because they gerrymander those too. And so you take a state like Pennsylvania, 13 Republicans and five Democrats in what's basically a blue state. At best, the 50-50 state. They've got 13 Republicans in the delegation and five Democrats. But it's the one state in the union now where we're going to have something like a fair fight. Because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down the gerrymander as obvious and transparent and extreme. And so there's some real districts that are open for play now in PA. So
0: are we going to get rid of gerrymandering?
1: I hope so. If you look at the legislation I've written with Don Beyer, we compel the use of independent, nonpartisan, expert redistricting commissions in every state and union and call for the use of neutral standards that will lead to proportional allocation of the House seats of a state. And that's what we want. If your party is getting 60% of the vote, you should get like three-fifths of the seats. But what we've got in so many states like Pennsylvania is the Democrats getting a majority of the votes for House of Representatives. And getting a tiny minority of the seats, 13 to 5, because they packed every Democrat in the state into a handful of districts. And they did it in North Carolina. They did it in Virginia. Look, Virginia is a Democratic state. Two Democratic U.S. senators, Democratic governor, Democratic attorney general, right down the line. And you know what they got in the legislature? Eight Republicans and five Democrats.
0: And But what's the chance of that really happening? I mean... It's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah, You're going to have to have Democrats in order to repeal that, but you can't get the Democrats unless you repeal it.
1: I think that the people across the board, Democrats, independents, Republicans too, detest gerrymandering. People hate the idea that the politicians choose the voters before the voters choose the politicians. And um, in order to make our elections meaningful, in order to revive real participation across the board, we've got to make our elections competitive again and make it— sensible and logical for people to go out and organize and campaign and then vote. So um, I think that if we can show that it works in Pennsylvania and that there are real changes after gerrymandering, then we can go state by state and do it. But, you know, we're fighting in Congress for national legislation to do this. And when we come in, I want that to be part of our democracy reform agenda. Well,
0: how are you going to get the blue wave without the gerrymandering being changed?
1: Well, only through an act of political will. People have got to go out and organize. People have got to go out. I mean, this election could not be more important. I know every two years we go out there, we tell people, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Hey, forget all that. This really is the most important election. Yeah, and aren't voters kind of worn out with that? Yeah, well, democracy takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy and you've got to charge yourself up. You only get exhausted or burned out if you think you've got to do it by yourself. Sometimes people say, I'm burning out. I say, if you think it's a solo exercise, you will burn out. But understand that this resistance that we're in and this resurgence and renewal, it's a collective exercise. We're working together.
0: Well, that brings me to another question. I always ask everyone, and I'm sure I know the answer to this from you, as you are an active participant in government, do you vote?
1: Drew, yes, yeah. I, I vote whenever I can I vote in every vote I even vote in like uh, my retirement mutual fund elections I vote, I vote in every election I can vote in
0: and one thing that I hear all the time this is the question I ask when I hear it people complain about the system people complain about what's going on I say do you vote Yeah. and they say no it doesn't do any good and I say you don't have any right to complain unless you're an active participant yeah. in the process what gives
1: you the right to complain about it where do you reach people and say, look, this is, yeah. you've got to vote. Well, you know, voting should be seen as the absolute minimum of participation. Yes, Everybody should do it, but that should be the floor and not the ceiling. Too many people look at it as the ceiling and they say it's not going to change anything. And you know... And they don't on, volunt- its, on its own it really won't. But if you vote and you protest and you act and you volunteer, write and you call you volunteer, you participate. Yes, it will do it. But I think it was Thoreau who said, "Vote not just with your ballot, but with your entire life."
0: That's a great saying, yeah. and I remember it is Thoreau. Yeah. The, so that also brings me to another question. The divisiveness in this country has created an, an environment in which. The press is vilified. We're the enemy of the people. I got smacked this week, just, you know, people were convinced that I'm making stuff up. And, And of course we didn't make anything up, we reported the facts. And it comes at you in waves of defiance. People not wanting to actually sit down and vet facts, but jump on whatever they can to back up their own beliefs. They live in their own philosophical cul-de-sac. Right. And the Kavanaugh case has shown that, to me. and Trump has. What in the name of heavens can Congress do? And that'll bring me around to your uh, to your legislation. What, but what can Congress do to assist reporting and the First Amendment, which seems to be under fire every yeah. day? Yeah.
1: Well, look. I mean, your point is right, which is we have lots of differences over values in the country. And that's great. I mean, if everybody had the same values, life would be really boring and it would probably be <laughs> authoritarian or fascist. So it's all right to have different values. But in and a different different democracy... And different opinions. about based on those values. But in a democracy, in order for public things and public processes to work, we've got to believe in facts, that there are facts that are held in common. That's why the attempt to discredit or ignore or avoid climate change science is so reckless and dangerous. I mean, it's, of course, the whole future of our civilization at stake. um, But it also is emblematic of a party that's now willing to disregard science and data and empirical results on everything. That's unacceptable. I mean, let's figure out what the data says, and then we can have a fight about values. But let's not mix them together. Let's not have the values distort the fact gathering process so well, that always makes me
0: wonder is the human species head for extinction because we just don't seem to be able to grasp science that well
1: well i think you're right to worry it's going to be a race it is it's a race between the part of our brain that wants to conform reality to our wishes and our desires and our beliefs and the part of our brain which says, hey we've got to recognize that there's a real world out there and there are like hurricanes and wildfires out of control and the glaciers are disappearing and the walruses are vanishing and the polar bears are drowning. I mean, do we take that stuff seriously or not? Do we just live in a little bubble until finally, you know, everything is engulfed and um, we have hundreds of millions of climate refugees and so on? So it is staring us in the face. I think any rational approach to public policy would say, that climate change is not an issue. Climate change is the whole context within which we've got to be addressing everything else right now. And we should be on an emergency footing. We should think of ourselves in public life as first responders, 365 days a year, dealing with the threat of climate change. Instead, we get Donald Trump tweeting out, climate change is a hoax, perpetrated by the Chinese well, or the Americans.
0: what about the congressman who walked in with a, uh, with a snowball and said, hey, no such thing as climate change. Right, if it snowed, there can't be, can climate be climate
1: change. I tweeted back to Trump, Donald Trump is the hoax perpetrated by the Russians on the Americans. <laughs> <side." laughs> Let's
0: talk a little bit about um, where there is some bipartisan cooperation, and amazingly enough, it is uh, about the press. And you have a national shield law, Jim Jordan, who would be the—I mean, they do say politics makes strange bedfellows. I can't think of two people at more opposite ends of the political spectrum. And yet you two are together on this particular piece of legislation. Yeah. Tell me about it.
1: Well, Jefferson said, uh, if you were to ask me to choose between having— uh, a government without a newspaper or a newspaper without a government, I wouldn't hesitate a moment to choose the latter. The newspapers... Fake news, fake news. <laughs> right. When you hear him say fake news, you, you know somebody published some facts that he didn't like. That's <laughs> But, yes, you know, right. so, but, um, you know w- what all we're saying here is that reporters shouldn't be thrown into jail for refusing to disclose confidential sources. Um, that have um, worked with them on their stories. So um, this is to protect the public's right to know and the right of reporters to do their job, which is written into the Constitution under freedom of the press, which is essential to a democracy. No democracy without the truth. You can't have democracy without the truth unless the people know what's taking place in the halls of government. Madison said that um, people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power that knowledge brings. Right, We've got to have the knowledge of public policy and what's taking place. And so much of the confidential sources that reporters get are people blowing the whistle on governmental corruption and misfeasance and illegal wars and covert operations and so on. This is a democracy. People have the right to know. Yes, they do. And still, we, we even jail the whistleblowers,
0: uh, who was the one that was jailed recently and brought to us celebrity whatever, I can't even remember name. But she uh, was jailed and brought to us the story of Russian hacking. And, we, and this government jailed the whistleblower on a, 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 using the Espionage Act. And President Obama was guilty of using the Espionage Act to jail whistleblowers more than any other president.
1: There's a long history of that, and I think that's uh, that's truly a a forgotten and important part of the Obama administration. That there were a lot of
0: prosecutions. Horrible.
1: Yes. So
0: this is this will make the first step. But let me ask you this, because when I first got into this business, and you talk about the need to cover government, eighty percent of what you see read or hear was owned by about two dozen companies. Today five or six own 90 to 95 percent of what we see read and hear.
1: Yeah.
0: Government, there are whole parts of government that aren't even covered anymore, the federal government. Reporters not covering committees, reporters not covering where they used to. This bill will make it possible for reporters to do their job, but what can Congress or should Congress do to make sure that the press, the free press continues to exist?
1: Well, that's a profound question. And I I think that we don't totally know the answer yet. We've had a whole bunch of hearings in judiciary that the Republicans called uh, with people whining about political discrimination in Facebook and Google and uh, Twitter and so on. Um, And most of that is just overblown and hyperbolic. And by The most unsavory characters like people who call children survivors of the Parkland massacre uh, crisis actors and stuff like that. But leaving all that aside, there is a profound question here, which is what should the obligations be of the social media of Facebook and Twitter and these massive conglomerate media entities that have so much power? over people's lives. Now, one way of thinking about it is they're just private corporations and they do what they want, basically. And then another possibility is that's been suggested is well that they have certain uh, likenesses to a common carrier, a public utility. Well,
0: um, let me ask you this, because, and, I, and I'm interrupting you, and forgive me for doing it, but here's the thing. You have Time Warner, you have Fox, you have these large corporations Why aren't we trust-busting them, A? And B, if you go back to 1981 and the FCC under Reagan, this is where I go back to Reagan. But until then, the airwaves, social media, the Internet, which is essentially the same thing, these were thought of as public trusts to be protected by government. Fowler came in with the FCC in 1981 and said the public airwaves are nothing more than selling the public airwaves is the same as selling toasters. Yeah. So... The idea was that it was a commodity instead of a public trust. Right. We got rid of the Fairness Doctrine. The 1996 Telecommunication Act further degraded the First Amendment. When do we, does anyone even understand that in Congress? And how do you address it?
1: Oh, I mean, that's another lost history of the Fairness Doctrine and equal time and so on. Um, And that's an important history for us to recover, because the public airwaves are the public airwaves. um, And they should be regulated in the interest of promoting public communication for democratic self-government. That is really what they should be for. So um, the, the question of how you deal with the social media, I think, is new. It's surprising, it's overwhelming, and it's important. And I don't think we're there yet in terms of figuring out Everything from the Communications Decency Act, Section Two Thirty, right. to what are people's political rights, if any, when you know vis-a-vis the social media, and I think that's worth having some serious analysis, not a you know bunch of whining by the uh, most extreme conspiracy theorists in the country. <laughs> well, we get that often enough. Yeah, and that has got to be an essential part of a democratic revival. Um, You know, the founders of the country really believed there should not be monopoly. It's just as dangerous in the economic sphere as it is in the political sphere. And usually a monopolist in the economic sphere will cross over and become a political tyrant. So the democratic faith in America has always been to break things up and to have real competition. If you don't, if you allow one or two big actors to take over everything, they start dictating the terms and acting like bullies both in economic terms and in political terms. So it's dangerous to real market competition, and it's dangerous to democracy itself. So I know
0: we're, we're on a short lease, and I really do appreciate you be in here Jamie and we want to do it again sometime any any last words you'd like to, to leave us with
1: well I, I so appreciate what you're doing I'm always rooting for you in the White House <laughs> I know that's not an easy assignment you've got when you're uh, over in that particular asylum uh, but uh, <laughs> asylum but, uh, is a nice
0: uh, word to use there I,
1: I just I want to say that um, these are tough times uh, they're hard times um, but, uh, you know, Tom Paine said that everybody who stands with us now will win the love and the favor and the affection of every man and woman, every woman for all time. And so we need people to hang tough, get us through this election. We need to restore some balance of power within the national government. And then we'll be able to turn some things around.
0: We've been talking with Jamie Raskin, uh, congressman from Maryland who's been with us here. It's Just asked the Question. I am Brian Karam, and I want to thank you, Jamie, and thank everyone for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week. Wonderful. a Thanks a lot. <laughs>